Welcome to the eBook Revolution podcast. I'm Emily Craven, bringing you interviews on writing, publishing, transmedia, book marketing, and the eBook Revolution. The companion website is ebookrevolution.blogspot.com. Enjoy the show. Hi guys, welcome very much to the eBook Revolution podcast. My name is Emily Craven and uh, this is the first podcast for 2014 in February. Uh, thank you very much for joining me again this year. Uh, today we're going to be speaking to a great personality. His name's Bill Thompson and he was chatting to me um, a little bit last year about how authors can go getting themselves interviews with uh, talk show hosts, whether they be on radio or on TV and how they can prepare for that. Um, but first, I just wanted to, I suppose, give you a little bit of a rundown of uh, where I'm at this year and, and what the, the big plans are. Um, I know a lot of people talk about resolutions during New Year and, you know, those sorts of affirmations like, I will build my author platform and wield an army of minion readers. It's not specific enough and that's not something you can um, you can aim for because, I mean, how do you even measure success you know do you measure a thousand reading minions as success or two thousand minions or a hundred hits on your blog or you know 300 minions sign ups on a newsletter it's um those sorts of affirmations to me uh those broad ranging ones uh, tend to be i suppose wishes and so i like to be a little bit more specific and i think of them less as resolutions and more about figuring out what it is that's most important to you because there are a thousand things that you could do in a year but figuring out what is most important to you and doing it is what's going to give you that sense of accomplishment at the end of 2014 and I even sort of had a physical representation of my accomplishments by uh, making myself and all my family members a jar and basically what I did was I hung these little bits of paper from the edge of the jar and anytime anything good happened I would pull a bit of paper off and then I would write it down and I would put it in the jar and the plan is is that at the end of 2014 you know on New Year's Eve I pull all of the bits of paper out of the jar and I see exactly what it is that I've managed to achieve um, and I've already put a couple in there I got my first check from a bookstore uh, two weeks ago um, for the the books that I sold at a book signing last year. I, um, I was able to give my mentor Isabel Carmody my own signed copy of my own book to her as, as thanks for all of the mentoring that she's given me. Um, and th- those little things are the ones that sort of go into the jar. Um, and it sounds silly, but at the end of the year, I'll be able to look back at that and say, oh, all of the little things add up. So... To me, what is most important for me this year, and what I call my happy list, I suppose, is I have five major things that I want to do. So um, the first one, obviously, as a writer, you know, you can't advance your career without words. So step one for me is going to be write, 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 write. So uh, I'm finishing the second in my Madeleine Kane comedy series, which is set in Facebook. And it's currently already at 100,000 words and still has about six scenes to go. I've never written a book that long. I, I find I'm flagging, but I've given myself the end of February as the deadline for finishing that first draft so that I can, you know, put it away for a, for a month and then make sure that I get enough editing done and all the post-production done so that it's ready to come out in June this year. And then I'm uh, looking at revisiting an old manuscript that which has been sitting on my hard drive for something close to seven or eight years, which was about uh, my gap year travel memoir when I had a gap year between my high school and um, 
and university years. And so I am actually going to be going back and revisiting that and releasing that as an e-book this year. Uh, I plan to collate my fantasy short stories that I have into collection to release this year, um, turning my non-fiction blog The Original Fantasy, where I talk about fantasy writing and my mentorship with Isabel Carmony. I'm hoping to turn that into an e-book this year. Um, And I'm also hoping to develop two different fantasy series that I'm uh, planning to do. So uh, one is an urban fantasy about a boy who discovers he's unwittingly released Jack the Ripper back onto the into the world, um, and then the second one is actually a, a more of a historical fantasy, which is set in Easter Island, which is an amazing place. And if you ever get the chance to visit it, I highly recommend it. I actually spent I think half an hour last year chatting to Matthew Riley at the Brisbane Writers Festival because we were both so obsessed with Easter Island and we wanted to share all of our tales. Sorry, that's not the point. Slight divergent there. Um, but the the next series that I want to write is a historical fantasy set in Easter Island, all about a young statue carver um, who has to learn how to trap the evil spirit that lives in the ground. Those are all my writing projects that I have this year. And if you know I even make half of those, I'm going to be very, very impressed with myself. Um, the second main aim that I want to do this year is I want to expand my market. So, you know, taking the work that I've already done and allowing the words to, to leave a page and have their own life in different media. So I'm actually looking to turn my Grand Adventures of Madeline Kane book into potentially either into an, an audio book or um, an animated YouTube series. So the, those are the plans for this year, um, as well as podcasting my fantasy manuscript, uh, Priori, which which I, I did um, during my mentorship with Isabel Carmody as a way to sort of uh, build an audience and, and hopefully find myself a publisher because I'm really into uh, getting that sort of hybrid model going where I would like to do my own self-publishing things. But at the same time, I would also like to work with traditional publishers in expanding um, my books out into the print world. I also want to continue to do more physical book signings for my Grand Adventures of Madeleine Kane. They were really successful in the last month of last year and I finally started getting my physical copies of, of Madeleine Kane out there um, you know print is a different media and it's not one that you should be sort of poo-pooing uh, as a as an author and particularly as a self-publisher because uh, you know just as ebooks are, are very strong they still are only 20% of the market and and the majority of people um, still read paperback books that I've actually found that even amongst my friends and family I've been getting more attention when I have been doing my print book signings than I have doing all of my efforts online for the ebook version. Uh, and then the final thing that I want to do is I want to um, look at turning my Jake's Page book into um, a play in several schools around Brisbane. So the plan is to contact several schools in, in the system around the area and see whether or not we can uh, get a dialogue going with the drama group. So that should be an interesting and, and I hope um, something that I can speak about on the blog as well. My third area of focus this year is is to be a more regular part of the community. So uh, I wanted the focus of my blogs to sort of shift from just self-publishing and, and more onto um, a combination of self-publishing and good writing because a lot of people forget in the self-publishing journey that it's good writing that really reaches readers. So uh, I'm going to be making sure that I... Uh, turn my blogger sites into brand new shiny sites. I am turning my ebook revolution 
blog in the next uh, couple of weeks that will be getting itself a, a brand new makeover and I'll be doing a little bit of a book launch with hopefully a couple of uh, giveaways and things like that so keep an ear out for that. I'll also be doing more guest posts on this podcast to keep you guys entertained and, and hopefully informed and then I will also be focusing on releasing two new courses this year to sort of help launch the versions of my blog so keep an ear out for that. The fourth focus is is to do more professional speaking. Even if I could have a professional speaking gig maybe, uh, you know, six months out of the year or, or more, that would be a, a significant um, improvement on last year where I had about five or six. So that's, that's another big area that I'm pushing in. And then the fifth area that I'm sort of looking at is I'm, I'm I suppose you could call it starting an alternative publishing house experiment. So I did these experiments last year with the Brisbane City Council uh, where we did a physical choose your own adventure where we used QR codes and these adventures would happen in the location where you were standing and you got a choice as to where you went in the story. I would like to move that forward and see whether I can partner with potentially an app developer to explore creating apps for the the publishing house and contacting local councils and government body, bodies to you know try and raise funds to develop both the application and to also write stories in their towns so that'll include a lot of grant applications and things like that but I am really looking forward to all five of my major areas for this year and uh, hopefully it brings a lot of learning to the blog that you guys can all sort of learn with me Um, and particularly to the podcast as well. The other major thing that I wanted to mention before I hand over to the uh, podcast with uh, Bill Thompson from the Bookcast is that for the first time ever, I've had my ebook revolution blog for four years now, and I've decided that I am finally going to start opening it to guest posts. I get asked quite a lot if I take guest posts, and so I've made the decision that yes, this year I'm going to be starting doing that so if you would like to contact me either about a writing a post to do with writing with publishing with uh, you know creating your author platform then feel free to send me a a bio and your uh, pitch to ebookrevolution at yahoo.com i hope you guys are having an awesome start of 2014 and enjoy the show Hi everybody, it's Emily Craven here from the Ebook Revolution podcast. Now, today I'm very excited about uh, the person that I have on the podcast. His name is Bill Thompson. Now, he is the creator and host of the Bookcast. Now, if you haven't heard of the Bookcast, it is a fantastic indie author interview uh, show, which is basically sort of a run a little bit like a podcast, 15-minute interviews with indie authors done with a wonderful Bill. Now, Bill is a radio journalist by profession, and he is currently on the air on major radio station in Washington, D.C. So he's worked for Associated Press, Radio Network, U.S. Today, Sky Radio, and The Voice of America. So since 1985, he's interviewed well over 9,000 authors, including some of the biggest names in contemporary literature. And in 2006, the opportunity to go indie presented itself, and he grabbed it, taking eye on books to the web and creating the bookcast. So thank you so much, Bill, for joining us today. Em, it's my great pleasure, and I also want to take time to point out that among those many more than 9,000 interviews was one Emily Craven with her excellent book. Oh, thank you, Bill. That was that was definitely how we met, and I was just I was blown away and so impressed. Well, I, I, I was very impressed, too, because the whole idea behind the bookcast is to highlight really, really good indie author writing, and uh, that's how I chose you because, uh, you know, I mean, it's I, I look at 
not the genre so much necessarily as is this really good writing and uh yours stood out thank you bill this is lovely oh i love i love <laughs> being able to interview people that i've made friends with on the web um but but not only i'm not just interviewing random people bill is actually bill is very experienced he's had almost 20 years worth of experience in radio journalism so today i wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit about what an author needs to get ready to be interviewed whether it be audio or for radio for even tv Okay. Well, the the very first thing they need is preparation. This is, it, that actually works the same whether you're being interviewed or doing the interviewing. There is no substitute for adequate preparation. I mean, that's that's as simple as I can put it. You have to be ready to do the task. Well, so so what are the benefits, I suppose, of of preparing yourself before an audio and radio interview, other than the fact, you know, that obviously you need to know what you're going to say so that you don't sound like you're missing a few brain cells. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. When I interview, especially indie authors, many of whom have never been interviewed before, one of the, one of the main things that they always wonder is, how am I going to sound? Because many of them have never even heard their own voice, uh, and they're worried about what they're going to sound like. So part of preparation for those people, I would say, is sit down in front of a tape recorder or a recorder, you know, audio recorder, a digital recorder. Everybody has something that they could record with these days and record yourself. Uh, ideally, maybe have somebody else interview you. Have a friend, someone that you, that you know and trust that's not going to embarrass you or going to laugh at your uhs and ums. Uh, and listen to your recording and see how you come across. Because some people, uh, they listen to the interview that I do with them and they say, is that what I really sound like? I suppose I suppose that is the major benefit of practicing because you don't realize that you use certain words or I noticed when I started doing these podcasts I start a lot of conversation and questions with the word so <laughs> annoys the annoys the crap out of me and um and it was only through recording that I I I realized that and you know this is going on the web so you kind of want to sound your best. Oh, when I was still a teenager, luckily before I even got into radio, I realized, much to my horror, that I started every sentence with a little smacking noise. And it, after you hear that three or four times, you just want to punch the person in the nose. It's true. And when you have people who, uh, when they're interviewing, they make noises during the interview as well. Like the, when someone's answering, they go, mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. Oh God, I want to punch you out. Um, but yeah, so so practicing um, and beforehand that kind of eases all those out and makes you feel a bit more professional. And sometimes you have to teach yourself when not to say anything, because some interviewers. And again, this is part of prep, uh, preparation. Is if you get the chance to, if if it's a podcast, for example, if you get the chance to listen to that person's interviewing style. Um, there's one particular interviewer that I've heard many times, and I won't say who it is because I'm about to embarrass him. He has the longest questions I have ever heard in my life. And they have subordinate clauses, and they have wildly subordinate clauses. And the question almost can become a mini-speech. And if you try to interrupt him, he will just keep talking until he finishes his darn question. So you might as well just wait till he's done answering, asking the question. So if you know ahead of time that that's his style, you could just sit quietly and wait until he's done talking and then answer the question. I suppose it's another great thing as well. Listen to the person who's going to be interviewing you. 
Yeah, and and sometimes you have access to that, and sometimes you don't. It might be an inter, an interviewer whom you've never heard of, you can't find online anywhere, you can't find on YouTube or on the web. In that case, just do your best. I have to say, I would listen to you all day, Bill, because you have the most fantastic voice. Well, it's just thank you. It's great. I just love. I love listening to it. I think to myself, man, that's just this fantastic. I feel like I'm talking to a person who's giving voiceovers all the time. <laughs> I, I I wish I were that good. There's a lot of money in that. <laughs> well, um, can you give us a little bit of a background on you and how you came to the point you are? At now, where you're interviewing indie authors. Well, there, here's the real quick summary. In June, in early June, I marked 40 years in radio. Uh, I go, yes, I, I started before the turn of the century, as we say now. Um, and when I started, there was a, a, a coach, a mentor, a colleague who took me aside one day because I had a little bit of raw talent. I'll, I'll say that, not much, but a little bit. And he said, you know. It's going to take you years, years before you can get your voice to do with it what you want. And I really didn't understand what he meant for several years until I realized there were certain things I couldn't do with my voice. Um, so th that said, I, 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 was a, I was a disc jockey for a very brief time, then quickly went into newscasting because you don't need a personality to do that. Uh, <laughs> I did that for a number of years. I started interviewing authors in 1985. Uh, mainstream, uh, uh, traditionally published authors. Uh, I've been doing that ever since, so that's 29 years now. Uh, You've had some big names come through, haven't you? Oh, I, I started, my first couple of interviews were with uh, Jackie Collins uh, and the, the actor John Houseman, who had just then had his, published his autobiography, uh, Tippi Hedren, the actress, who, who you remember, maybe remember from the Hitchcock classic, The Birds. So, you know, yeah, there were, there were some big names that were a little intimidating, but then later, the big literary names, uh, Isaac Asimov, the, uh, the, the noted science fiction writer, uh, Leon Uris, uh, Margaret Atwood, uh, uh, John Updike. Uh, <laughs> there was a number of authors that, that just completely blew me away. Uh, and others just like, eh. <laughs> and so why did you go from mainstream radio to indie authors? Well, about two years ago, um, after I should say, after more than 20 years of turning away what we used to would dismissively call self-published authors or vanity authors, because first of all, their books were almost uniformly bad. Uh, that was in, in the old day. There really was no distribution structure. There was no, no such thing as an e-book back in the 80s or 90s. And if you wanted to write and publish your own book, you basically submitted a manuscript to a house that would then sell you 15,000 hardcover copies, ship them to your house, and you would sell them out of your garage. Uh, and it was a horrible business model. The books were terrible. So I made a policy. I do not interview self-published authors. But about two years ago, I realized I was getting a lot of requests for interviews from self-published authors. And I took a fresh look at what had happened to the indie book industry, did a lot of research, and boy, were my eyes opened. It's It has become, it's entirely different now than it was when I first put that no self-published author's policy in place. And I realized I'm turning away some people who are incredibly talented. And uh, so at that point, again, after careful research, uh, and and after consulting with a number of indie authors on what they thought would would best help you guys, uh, that's when I started the bookcast. 
That's fantastic. Uh, did you did you find going from radio to to on web particularly difficult? No, because and here's here, when I first launched uh, my first website, which is called Eye on Books, and it's still active. That's where I interview traditionally published authors. The very first reason I set that up was because I had so many authors who would come through my radio studio because uh, I used to do this on the radio too, and they would say, "Where can I get a copy of the interview?" And it was a pain in the butt to give them a copy, make a cassette, then you have to stuff it in an envelope, you have to put postage on it, none of which my station paid for. It was all out of my pocket. And I thought, there's got to be a way that, I, you know, we're in the, you know, the late 1990s now. There must be a way that I could get these, the, these interviews up and, and the, let the authors listen to them. And I thought, I'll just put them up on the web, and then they can just download them. Now, it took about two seconds before I realized, I think the general public might like that website, too. <laughs> So, so making the transition, and then all I did was put my interviews, uh, including the portions I wasn't able to use on the radio, on the web for people to listen to. And Ion Books has been around now since April of 2000. It's still going strong. Uh, now I have the bookcast as well. Wonderful! Well, congratulations on on all of that, on your 40 years, on your um, on and on your, your two websites as well. I've listened to um, interviews in both of them, and I just I, I love what you do. Well, thank you. I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Well, you, you certainly sound like you are. Um, I wanted to ask, what are the top three things that you need before you approach an, an interviewer or a station for an interview? All right. So if you're an author, let's say you've just completed your book. You've worked for two years on this book. It's perfect. You've had it expertly edited. You've had a copy reader and copy proof. Everything is done. You've hired a professional artist to, to design a cover that will attract attention. Now all you got to do is get your word out. Now you're going to approach somebody like me. <laughs> so I, first thing you need, you need an elevator pitch. Um, that's that quick little two-line summary of your book that tells in just a few, sent a few seconds what it's about. Because let's face it, media people, whether you're mainstream media or whether you're a blogger, or whether you're just somebody that you think might be interested in your book, you don't have time to listen to the full story of how this book came about and how much, you know, all the work you went into it and all the editing, blah, blah, blah. They just want to know, all right, it's a science fiction story. It's kind of like Gone with the Wind, except in the 29th century, you know, or something like that. So that's number one. Number two, before you approach any interviewer or any blogger, know your book. And that sounds really basic but you'd be surprised the number of authors that I talk to and I ask them about a particular plot twist or a particular character or a particular theme and they're kind of lost for a moment because they're already thinking about the next book that they're working on or even the one after that. So know your book thoroughly before you go out there and start trying to talk about it. Um, and, the, and I would say the third thing that you really need to know before you approach an interviewer uh, is what we were talking about a moment ago. Know the show. Uh, listen to it if you can, uh, but at least at, a, at, at the least find out how long is it? Is it for a general audience? Is it for a specific sub-genre audience? What kind of angle are they looking for? Are they going to ask you to read from your book? Uh, all these kinds of things so you're not caught by surprise. And as you were saying, like you, uh, I know that from reading your guidelines, because you should definitely read the guidelines as well, mm -hmm. um, from reading your guidelines, you mentioned very specifically, I am not a reviewer. Mm -hmm. I interview people. And also you, you ask people to send a, like a 10-page sample so that you know that what you're reading is 
is good. It's 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 fairly well written and. So if you don't know the first 10 pages of your book and the themes that you have passed on to Bill, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble. Mm-hmm. No, and, but I should also say, this happens to mainstream authors as well, many of whom, and, and the problem with the mainstream publishing business model, as you know, is that you finish a manuscript, you turn in a manuscript, it might be a year before that sucker comes out. <laughs> and in the meantime, because you have to make a living, you're on to the, to the next book. So that by the time you actually go on an author tour, if Random House or Simon & Schuster sends you on a tour, you literally are, your mind is on the next book. You're already halfway through that plot and those characters. And so when an interviewer like me says, um, why doesn't this plot line you know, end here? Why, why does this character do that? I've seen some deer-in-the-headlights looks that'll kill. <laughs> Of course, because you would have gotten to see all of those people personally. Now I'm jealous because you got to see all of these wonderful people personally. <laughs> well, some some of them I I'm afraid uh, I probably can't shouldn't tell stories about because if you knew how unprepared some major authors are on the tour, not all of them. Most of them are very well prepared, but every now and then I I get the feeling. I get the feeling, I can't confirm this, but I think there are some mainstream authors that basically tell their publisher, "Eh, just tell me where to go. I'm, I'll, I'll wing it. I'll be fine. Always be prepared. <laughs> yes, yes. Can I ask, what are, what are some things that indie authors do when they send you their pitch that kind of always get under your skin, things that you, like, you immediately discount? I'm about to disclose things I have never disclosed before. <laughs> Number one, the thing that irritates me the most is when they don't pay attention. As you just mentioned, I have guidelines. They're very simple guidelines, very easy to meet guidelines. But every day I get a pitch from somebody who has ignored, skipped over, decided it doesn't apply to them, whatever, one or more of my guidelines. One of which simply is, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, politely, I'll say, no, I don't want to talk to you if your book is more than a year old, because I want the newest and most current books. And every day I get a pitch from somebody whose book came out two, three years ago, uh, I'll say, um, you know, I, I need your first 10 pages, like you, like you mentioned a moment ago, but excluding the copyright page and the f- table of contents. And there's the stuff that doesn't really tell me anything about the writing. And every day I get first 10 pages that include blank pages, the dedication page, you know, and maybe two pages of actual literature. And I can't judge a book on that. So, so that's, that's my prime peeve is people who just, don't pay attention. Yeah, I, I think that's the prime peeve of, of a lot of uh, reviewers as well, so I can completely understand that. Can I ask, what things do you need or you need to work on before you do your interview? Because I know that you know a lot of people go on about how you should already have a set list of questions that you should hand your interviewer to help them along or, or what not, what would you recommend? Well, and sometimes that's good advice because sometimes, especially when you're dealing with bloggers, you may in fact be dealing with somebody who, like you, is not very experienced at this. I mean, it's the, 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 let's put it this way. The number of people like me who have many, many years of interviewing experience are relatively few and far between. More likely, you're going to run up against somebody who either rarely does interviews or maybe in some cases has never done one themselves. So in that case, again, it helps if you know a little bit about the person you're going to be talking to, and a list of questions might in that case be very much appreciated. Um, I'll be frank with you. I usually, if I get suggested questions, 
I may glance at them, <laughs> but I my my dirty little secret is I usually ignore them. <laughs> You're the experienced one, though. And and sometimes the prepared questions tend to be a little predictable, a little uh, you know, like along the lines of so. Tell me why your book is so great. Awesome. <laughs> so now, if you if you if you get the chance to give the questions in advance, limit it to maybe five, four or five questions. Unless you know it's going to be a, an hour long interview, then then you might need more than that. Oh, also one very very important thing, Em, make sure you have a working telephone or computer, whichever technology you're going to use. Test everything ahead of time. Make the house quiet. Remove pets, turn off the TV, remove other distractions, because those are all interviewer killers. And um, I suppose you would also need a very good microphone as well. Well, not a very good microphone, but at least not use your laptop's microphone. It depends. I mean, with I've, I've had good luck with authors who are using their MacBooks uh, or iPads or iPhones. Apparently, anything Apple makes, the sound is quite good. But anybody else, you're right. Uh, and I, unfortunately, um, people who will set their, their laptop, their non-Apple uh, laptop on the desk, and then they'll lean back from it <laughs> as, if they're, as if they're afraid to get too close. They don't realize the microphone, the part that I need you to be close to, is built into the frame of your computer. And the further back from it you sit, the more you're going to sound like you're in a whole other room. And for me... Audio quality is everything. I mean, uh, it's I'm an old radio guy. I mean, I have to make you sound good, and I can't do that if you're going to lean way back from your microphone. And I suppose wearing um, headphones would also help as well because you get kind of that double echo uh, if you're listening to it on speakers. Right. Skype has uh, what's called latency, which is the same thing you get when a news anchor throws it to somebody via satellite in some distant city, you'll notice there's often a lag of a second or two before the person starts talking. It's because that's how long it takes for the anchor's voice to reach them. Skype works largely the same way. There's, there's a, a, a little bit of a gap between the time I stop talking and the time it sounds to you like I've stopped talking. And so, yeah, wearing headphones. In fact, here's the way to, get, here's the way to accomplish two goals at once. If you buy a simple USB headset that includes uh, headphones and a built-in little microphone, sort of like what telephone operators use. It's a thing that you know just curls down right in front of your mouth. That'll guarantee that, A, you can hear me fine, and, B, that you'll sound great because you'll be right in front of the microphone. Those things are great, and they only cost $20. Oh, yeah. I, I, I have a pair that I bought for $20. Uh, they, they range on up to you if you want to get some really fancy uh, gaming uh, headsets, for example. Uh, they can range well into $100 or more, but you don't need that. A $20 or $30 set will do you fine. Particularly if you're planning to do a lot of interviews. Exactly, exactly. Uh, although I, I will point out, if you're going to be doing a lot of interviews and you really want to sound good, then you can get into a little bit higher-end USB microphone. You're still not going to spend probably even $100, but you can get a little bit better quality desktop microphones. Uh, and you can, and then if you want it, if you really want to spend you know, some serious money, um, my daughter gave me a studio-quality USB microphone, uh, which is what I use, because I figure I'm doing interviews every day. But you don't need that kind of thing if you're only going to do one once in a while. Is there any other things that that people should or, or need to work on before they do an interview? Well, it, let's come back to what we were saying a moment ago about practice. And 
get to know what your own voice sounds like because and and again I'm just maybe it's because I've heard my own voice so many millions of times over the years that you know I, I don't even give it a second thought anymore but I'm I'm amazed at the number of people here we are a, a decade or more into the 21st century and people still have never heard their own voice uh, except maybe on their their outgoing voicemail message or something like that take a few minutes record yourself uh on your on your on your computer with a little handheld digital phone or uh, or digital recorder I should say or on your phone or your uh you know, camera whatever just record yourself just read and read a passage out of your own book or have somebody interview you just so that you can see oh people will say i didn't realize i sounded that nasal or people will say wow i mean i really say uh a lot and you can work on these things. I mean, they're correctable. Uh, and if they drive you crazy, they probably drive other people crazy too. But uh, Or maybe there's, like you were saying, maybe there's a particular word or, or phrase that you use kind of like a crutch, and you find you use it too much. And that will come out if you do a little bit of practice. I remember when we had our last conversation, uh, we were talking about the, the different things that newbies do. You were saying that some of them talk too fast and they need to mm -hmm. learn how to slow down. That's usually a result of nervousness. Uh, I find sometimes I get nervous when I'm interviewing a big author, uh, you know, especially if it's somebody that I've, been, that I've been looking forward to interviewing for a long time. When I interviewed Gore Vidal, he just kind of crossed his arms and looked at me across the table with that kind of a look on his face that said, I dare you to interview me. <laughs> wow. It was it was very intimidating and I I'm sure I talked too fast at first. But, you know, at some point you need to I mean if if you're an interviewer who's who's talking too fast, you need to take a deep breath and realize, wait a minute. This is my interview. I'm running this. I'm in charge. If you're the one being interviewed and you find you're talking too fast, and it's not because of, and and if you're talking too fast it's not because you're up against the clock. You're just talking too fast because you're nervous. There's nothing wrong with pausing for just a second, taking a deep breath. Don't exhale and inhale into the microphone <laughs> like that. Um, but take a deep breath, cleanse your mind for just a moment, and say, "All right, wait a minute. Let's get back. Let's." Get, I, the the mental image I get is a is a car that the wheels have just kind of slid off the shoulder. We need to just get the car back up on the road and get back up to speed again, and everything will be fine. Um, and that almost always works. Nice. It's too bad that, you know, you can't learn to be concise. That's something you've got to practice. I wish I could just learn how to be concise. Then doing things like interviews and, and synopses would be so much easier. That's true. But then again, I always tell people because, again, one of the questions I've, I've gotten very frequently after an interview is, even by well-known authors, they'll say, well, what advice would you have for me, you know, for next time when I do another interview? And the question I, or the answer I always give them is, well, it depends. Because when they come to me, like you came to me, we did a 15-minute interview uh, on tape. Sometimes you'll be doing a three-minute live interview. Sometimes you'll be doing an hour-long live interview. Sometimes you'll be doing an hour-long interview on tape. And each situation requires, I mean, you wouldn't give really, really short answers in an hour-long interview. And you wouldn't give really long, expansive answers with lots of subordinate clauses in a three-minute interview. So you can't be that clueless. You have to know, and, and that goes back to preparing by knowing what kind of show, you're, show or interview you're about to do. 
Well, you were telling me when we recorded our interview, you were saying it's pre-recorded. If you stumble over something, stop, pause, give enough of a break for me to edit it out, mm-hmm. and then start it again. Right. And then you'll you'll you won't interrupt. You'll understand that that person has started again. And I suppose that's the benefit of knowing if something's going to be pre-recorded or live. That's that's true. Yeah, and and. Obviously, if you if you're on a live interview, especially on a radio station somewhere, and uh, you know <laughs> the clock is ticking, uh, there's no mute switch, there's no uh, do over button. If you make a mistake, all you can do in that case is either quickly and quietly correct it. You know, I meant to, oh, I'm sorry, I meant to say million, not billion, and move on, or just live with it. And that teaches you to practice beforehand. Exactly, <laughs> and and that and that's actually. That's actually not a bad thing to learn how to do is maybe uh, it, during these practice sessions, you know, do something. Maybe have your fake interviewer, your friend, your relative who's doing it with you, ask you a question that they think might kind of throw you for a loop so that you might. I've had authors get tongue-tied uh, over a phrase that's in their own book uh, because they've never said it out loud before. <laughs> uh, it, it's little things like that that will trip you up. What would be your key secret for how to prepare your voice to sound as awesome and professional as you? Because I'm sure there's some sort of vocal exercises or something that you do to just have that awesome bass going on. Well, you know, this is, again, something when I was, when I was a teenager thinking about getting into radio, I wrote to several very well-known news anchors in the U.S. and asked them what they did. Uh, it was, it's a very common question. And... Without exception, they all wrote back very nicely and said, we don't do any kind of voice exercises. (laughs) It really, truly is practice, practice. It's almost like if if you think of your voice as a musical instrument, which it essentially is, you wouldn't expect to pick up a violin and just do scales every day and then be able to play, you know, the flight of the bumblebee. You have to practice the flight of the bumblebee. And the only way you can make your voice do what you want it to, like that coach told me when I first got into radio, uh, that he said it would take years to get your voice to do what you want it to do. Now I know, now I know what he means, because there are certain, certain emotions, perhaps, that I want to elicit, uh, a certain tone that I want to take on. And that's hard work for me, because I've been trained in a certain style, or trained myself, I guess I should say, in a certain style, and to think... Maybe, and I hate this phrase, but think outside the box a little bit. Stretch your capabilities. Um, And that's why I said a moment ago, try reading out of your own book. um, And read it in the style of an audio book, where you're not just reading the words on the page. Practice that is all you can do. Record yourself. I'm amazing. No, give it some feeling. Give it some emphasis. Give it some thought. Pause in places. uh, Try different things. Try it in an accent. um, Try anything that you think might stretch your vocal capabilities some don't do monotones no no please that's that's a that is a killer i all right i interviewed a woman once a mainstream published author she came to my studio she had a stack of three by five cards and i should have seen this coming she spread them out in front of her almost like you were playing solitaire and any question i asked her you could see her she her fingers flying over the cards trying to find the one that contained the answer to the question i just asked and she would then pick up the card and read me the answer <laughs> yeah, that was that was not a fun interview. <laughs> as soon as you said the word accent, immediately a whole heap of accents sprang into my mind, which would surely be racist if I tried them. <laughs> but you, could, I mean, you know, 
it doesn't even have to. You could just pick a pick a, a random. It doesn't even have to be a recognizable accent. Just read it funny, and just in doing that, that'll stretch you enough that you'll realize, oh, all right, that's the way certain words sound, and this is the way I should make it sound if I wanted to do something different. I'm sure. I, I, I'm guessing in Australia there are two or three different types of accents. Are there not? There are indeed. So try 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 it as though you were one of those other accents read read something in that read something in uh, as though you were queen elizabeth because you know a, a proper you know upper crust british accent is very different from you know a cockney accent uh try reading one does not believe so <laughs> yes. but one could be wrong <laughs> try, i mean i i hear this frankly in commercials all the time in the u.s radio commercials where the announcer is trying to sound very british and you realize he's mixing you know, the very proper British, the very educated British with the kind of Cockney British with a little bit of Australian thrown in. He's not quite sure what he's supposed to do with his R's, you know. <laughs> but here's the thing. It gets you to thinking about vowels and consonants and the sounds your mouth makes, and it makes you more comfortable with just speaking regularly. Fantastic little instruction there, actually. I had someone tell me once that to help with the tone of your voice, so being able to make things go you know, higher and lower, to I suppose give yourself a bigger range, they actually recommended like a couple of days before they gave a presentation, they screamed into a pillow. Because <laughs> they've got the vocal cords, I'm assuming, working, lengthening. I'm not sure, but it allowed them to move them better. I, well, have you heard of that? It, it sounds to me like a really good way to ruin your voice. Uh, you, re, you really don't want to be doing much screaming. Uh, <laughs> but, for, for example, all right, um, let's, uh, one of the things, all right, let me let's see if i got something right here on my desk in front of me that I can just read you two or three words. Uh, oh, is it a tongue twister? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm going to, all right. Um, all right, one of the questions that you, that you would ask me to prepare for, uh, here's my answer to that question. I'm delighted to have readers and authors visit the bookcast, browse the site, sample some of our 150-so interviews. Now, I could also read it as, I'm delighted to have readers and authors visit the bookcast, browse the site, sample some of our 150-so interviews. Or I could say, I'm delighted to have readers and authors visit the bookcast, browse the site, sample some of our 150-so interviews. Now, each of those, I'm, I'm doing something different with my voice. I'm making it louder, softer, higher, lower. But I'm, I'm stretching my vocal capability. I'm not even doing a very good job of it, actually. But you're, you're stretching. You're trying different things. And I think too many people get stuck in what they think needs to be the only way to read a sentence or, or to give an answer. That's fantastic. I kind of want to try that. I don't want to do it now because I think I might <laughs> stuff up the interview. But I'm definitely going to try that later. You give me so many ideas. <laughs> so I did want to know, you know, what are the top three mistakes that authors make when appearing on radio? You know, so what do they need to watch out for? Obviously, no uh, cards. Uh, yeah, no yeah, cards. Yeah, no, no note cards. Yeah. That's a, although, I, uh, now, hyphen, asterisk next to that. If you're doing it like we're doing now via Skype where I can't see you, you can't see me. If you really, really need cards, okay. It's, 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 you know, it's like an open book exam. It's okay, you know, but just don't make it sound like you're reading off the card. That's the only thing. Uh, all right. Some consultant is out there right now telling authors, and I've, I've run into this, some of these consultants' clients. Some consultant is out there telling authors, make sure you say the name of your book every time you answer a question. 
And the result then is no matter what you ask, well, Bill, as I explain in my book, Your Parrot and You, A Complete Guide to Talking Birds, uh, blah, 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 blah. And the next question is, you know, well, how many colored parrots are there? Well, Bill, in my book, Your Parrot and You, A Complete Guide to You and Your Talking Birds. Oh, that's irritating. Don't ever do that. Another thing that authors do is, and this goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, they fail to find out how long the interview will be. So if you're going to be giving really, really long answers in a three-minute interview, you're going to be in trouble. Or if you're giving really short answers in an hour-long interview, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, and that's, that's a, that's a no-no. And I would say the third big mistake that authors make is failing to make sure ahead of time that the interviewer has everything that he or she will need. And that may or may not include prepared questions like we were saying, but at the very least it should include you know, the book synopsis, a copy of the book ideally, but if that's not available, then just a really good summary, uh, you know, your author, author bio, your contact information so that the interviewer has a way to get a hold of you if you don't make contact at the time and place that you're supposed to. Uh, you know, basic things like that that you can't just leave all that. to. Now, if you're working with a, a major publisher, they'll do that all for you. I mean, the, the publicity department, that's what they're for. But if you're an indie, you might have to do all that stuff yourself. When you you ask to keep an eye out for the various times that the interview runs for. Can you can you get much out in a three minute interview? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I once did a ninety second interview, uh, and I just I I knew I was only going to have literally a minute and a half, and I just prepared questions that I knew would elicit quick little answers, and sure enough, it worked, and we did a nice ninety second interview with Jay Leno. <laughs> wow. <laughs> But his, his people and the NBC people and his publisher people, that was all they would give me, 90 seconds. That's crazy. Well, in, in a three-minute interview, what would you recommend would probably be the most important thing for an author to get out in that three minutes? comes back to what we were saying earlier, the, the, the elevator pitch. You want a, a quick, snappy way to describe your book in, a, in an attractive way. Um, I, w I was recently interviewing a woman whose book is about a screenwriter who goes to Hollywood and learns her first day out there that she has to have a really quick pitch for her screenplay because Hollywood agents are busy. They will hang up on you if you don't get to the point. <laughs> now, a good interviewer probably won't hang up on you, but you can't just prattle on for three minutes if you've only got three minutes. Uh, and the first question may be, it may very well be, so tell me about your book. What's it about? Why should we buy it? And if you don't have a quick 10 or 15 second answer to that, um, you're going to spend the rest of those three minutes fumbling and looking like a fool. Indeed. I, like, when I talk to people about doing pitches, I say, you know, you need a seven word pitch, you need a two sentence pitch, and then you need a paragraph pitch. And the paragraph pitch is always for your synopsis. You never really say that, but it's always that two to three word pitch that and, and come up when you're talking and that that is extremely good advice i mean you are you are right on with uh, on with that i mean you need two or three different ways to describe your book depending on how much time you have let's face it most people the reason they call it an elevator pitch is because it's it's something that you can give in between the first floor and the ninth i think that i would feel really self-conscious if i tried to pitch it in an elevator i feel like i'd be trapping that person in there in a corner well, if you're writing all the way up to the observation desk on, on the 101st floor, then you've got a few extra seconds. You know, but, Good point. But literally, if you're going from the lobby up to the ninth floor, which is probably – I've never done a study, but I'm guessing that's probably about the average. You might have 10 seconds, and you better have a way in 10 seconds to explain to that person why they should be interested in your book.
just don't hope for an agent to come with you into the Empire State Building elevator, all right? It's just Strange. luck never happens that way. Stranger things have happened, but... <laughs> Do interviews either on radio or online actually work? You know, is it worthwhile for an author? There's a famous quote by an old-timer in the U.S. advertising business. He said, 50% of all advertising dollars are totally wasted. We just don't know which 50%. And you can kind of apply that across the board to broadcast and online media when it comes to book interviews, too. Probably half your efforts will be totally wasted, but you don't know which half. And there are some, there are some that will produce instant results, some that will produce results over a long period of time, every now and then you'll get lucky and you'll hit a bullseye. Maybe you'll have a highly targeted, motivated blogger who has a small audience, but every single one of them is interested in your book. Or you might be talking to a radio talk show host that has a million listeners, but of those million, only a handful will fall within your target audience range. So it's, I, I hate to say that it's, 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 the luck of the draw, but it kind of is. And that speaks to why you need to be careful about which shows or which blogs you say yes to, but also don't automatically, just out of hand, reject any one of them because they look too small or they look too, you know, regional or they look too this or too that. Because sometimes that's the one that's going to be the gold mine. And I mean, like, it would be difficult for you anyway to be able to determine how many people listening because you have people taking things from your RSS feeds and you have people actually visit the site physically and it's it's very hard for you to be able to calculate that sort of audience too and then once you know that that audience is there you can't necessarily say well what do they like true and and in my particular case as with YouTube you can embed my interviews on your own website so you may not even need to listen to visit the bookcast.com in order to hear somebody's interview, you might be listening to it on that person's own website. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's uh, things like this tend to have a long tail. I mean, that's the whole purpose really of the internet is to make something available for more than just the here today, gone later today, nature of radio. Um, and you know, radio sells a lot of books. Don't get me wrong. Uh, radio sells a lot of books, um, much more so than TV actually, which is contrary to what some people think. Everybody loves the glamour of TV, but it's actually radio that sells more books. Um, but if you get a well-targeted blog, if, for example, you have a, you've written a novel about a woman whose poodle comes back to life and, you know, something like that, maybe blogs that, that appeal to dog owners would be the best place to talk about your book as opposed to book-oriented websites. Uh, you know, it, it's that kind of thinking that you have to put into it. it it's, you, you can't just automatically go for, here's the top 10 radio stations, the top 10 bloggers, and ignore everybody else. That's, that's not going to get you anywhere. Can we talk at the end of this interview, because it's been absolutely fantastic, it's just a gold mine of information there. I feel like I've gotten my own little lesson or course in radio interviewing. I wanted to know, as an indie author who wants to do interviews, is there anything that you feel that we haven't talked about yet in that you could give them advice on? Uh, and they're, they're, uh, the one key thing that trumps everything else, even preparation, curiosity. If, you, if, you don't, if, you, if you're not curious about a book the way it was written, the author, why they wrote it, how they wrote it, what they went through, 
then I'm, I'm sorry, interviewing probably isn't what you should be doing. <laughs> but, but if you've got a genuine curiosity and a genuine interest in what people have done and are doing, um, my, my secret formula, if you want to call it that, is just I just ask questions. I just, I, I'm, I'm, just, I, I'm curious and I just ask people questions about what they do. And not being too stringent about keeping to the questions that you had on your list as well, because it kind of makes for a boring interview. Well, to be honest, when I first started doing author interviews, I had, I would go in like a good journalist should with a clipboard full of questions. And I had question one, question two, question three, question four and five and so forth. One of my first interviews was with an author that I uh, just absolutely, I, I, I thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I don't know why that is, because I guess sliced bread is supposed to be really good. But uh, he, he, was, he, he was one of my favorite authors. I couldn't wait to interview him. And I got in there with that clipboard full of questions, and it was one of the worst, most boring interviews I've ever done before or since, because I was so boundly determined he was going to answer question number one before we moved on to question number two. And he was no way he was, we were moving to question number three until he finished answering question number two and so forth. I just it, – it, it, was, it was horrible. It was stilted. It was – uncomfortable. And that day I threw the clipboard out. I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I'm just going to, I'm going to read the book. I'm going to have a conversation with the author about it. And we'll just take the conversation wherever it goes. Well, so, you know, it, let's put it this way. I mean, it's, it's fine to have a couple of questions in on standby, just in case you run into somebody who has forgotten it's a 15 minute interview and they're giving you questions as though it were a two minute interview. <laughs> and I've had that happen. And it's nice to have a, a question or two kind of to fall back on. Uh, but I generally don't, I mean, this is when, you know, authors say, well, what are you going to ask me? I tell them, honestly, I don't know. You know, I, I have like a general question that gets us started, but then beyond that, I don't know. You've, you've got very good questions though. You, and I mean, it must come from, from experience because you asked very sort of probing deep level questions that, um, I wasn't expecting, but glad that you asked. <laughs> well, part of that comes from. You know, again, all the years that I've been interviewing, interviewing authors, there are, there are certain creative patterns, if you want to put it that way, that authors follow, no matter what your level of expertise or, or how many books you've written. But then the other thing is, like I said, just curiosity. I mean, I'm kind of a wannabe writer someday myself, and I guess I'm kind of asking kind of the, what do I want to say, the, the, the kinds of questions that I would want to ask and, and seriously answer, like, how do you pace a thriller right? I mean, you know, you're taking months to write it. It takes us a day or two to read it, and it's happening in real time. Maybe it takes place over two hours. How do you maintain that level of tension right? You know, it's questions like that. I'm genuinely curious. How do you do it? That's why, you, that's why I suppose this has become a bit of a passion because you just – I bet you have the best repository <laughs> on how to write a book out of anyone. I, you know, I probably do because I've saved all my interviews over the years. So I have, you know, thousands and thousands of, you know, everybody from Mary Higgins Clark and, and uh, uh, Elmore Leonard uh, on up to Stephanie Meyer and, and everybody talking about how they do what they do. Just at the pointy end of this interview, ask you a little bit more about the, the book cast. So you do interviews for all kinds of indie books, don't you? Nonfiction, YA, thrillers, the whole lot. Uh, yeah, I, I try to. And uh, again, I'll, I'll be candid with you. And you're the first person hearing this. Your listeners are the first people hearing this. I'm thinking of narrowing the focus just a tad, just a little bit, to exclude what are, I'm sure, fine, well-written books, but they're more how-to books. 
I'm trying to focus the book cast, I think, on literature, if you know what I mean. And so even even a nonfiction book, if it's biography or or a memoir uh, or something like that, often will have kind of a narrative thread. If if people say to you about your nonfiction book, "Wow, this reads like a novel," then yeah, I want then I want you to have a, I want to have you on the book cast. But I'm not sure that I want to have like real estate investment books and things like that. I've done a couple of those, but honestly, I think. I think my readers probably want more like actual literature. Uh, what, what do you think? Well, I, I think you're right. They want to be entertained and they want to get recommendations on what they should be entertained on. So creative nonfiction sounds to me like it would lend itself better to um, those sort of exploratory interviews as well. Otherwise, it's kind of just an information. Yeah. Interview. Like what I'm doing. I suppose this, you know, this is an information interview. I'm learning about the craft and things of writing. So people have come here to learn rather than be entertained. And if you're wanting people to buy books, you want them to be entertained by it rather than... I, Actually, that's probably just my fiction brain. No, no but I, I suspect, and again, I'm, I'm still, I, I, I research the, the indie market very carefully even now, well after I've launched the site, because I want to keep up with what the thinking is, what, what, the, what readers are thinking. And I'm finding that most often when I see the phrase indie author, it's not associated with a how-to book. It's associated with fiction. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm thinking that that's probably where more where I should take the focus. But back to your original question, yes, it, I, I range across all genres. I've even discovered a couple of genres I didn't even know existed. Uh, and, and all types, you know, for all ages of readers, I had a 13-year-old author. Uh, so it, it's anybody who, anybody who's written indie book, uh, an indie book is welcome. And we are very, very grateful for both your interviewing and the time you've given us today. My great pleasure. So how can people find out more infor information about the book cast and contact you? Well, they can, uh, we're at www.thebookcast.com. Don't forget the, thebookcast.com. Uh, and there's. I actually was just thinking the other day that I probably should put little how to use the site helps you know on the page, and I'm probably going to be installing those soon. But it's a pretty straightforward site. You can browse uh, by the name of the author if you happen to know which author you're looking for, or more likely you're just looking for a particular type of book. We have them all sorted by genre so that you can listen. They're all there to listen to. Once an interview goes up on the site, it doesn't come back down. So we have interviews that go back a couple of years on the site. They're all, if I do say so myself, very entertaining. Uh, and I can simply be reached at bill at thebookcast.com. Thank you so much, Bill. This has been a fantastic interview. Emily, it's been my great pleasure. I'll be happy to talk to you anytime. I thought I'd end this podcast with a short interview that Bill did with me for the bookcast on my book, The Grand Adventures of Madeleine Kane. Hopefully, you too will contact Bill to talk about your own work. In the world of social media status updates where friends can follow your every move, how is Madeline supposed to get out of the hole she's created? In Emily Craven's novel, The Grand Adventures of Madeline Kane, Photographer Extraordinaire, Madeline has achieved her dream, acceptance into world-famous photographer Jason E. Anson's exclusive college in New York. Like many people of her generation who travel overseas, she turns to Facebook as a means of passing on news and keeping in touch with family and friends. But her move from sleepy Adelaide to New York City doesn't exactly turn out as she expected. From her first meeting with her chain-smoking, club-crazy housemate and his superhero Mexican chameleon Duncan, she knew she was in for an interesting time. At an abusive umbrella, 
pizza deliveries to porn sets and being pulled in by the FBI for questioning, and things move from the interesting to the ridiculous. And thanks so much for joining us on the bookcast. No, thank you so much for having me, Bill. It's wonderful. I tell you, I want to get to know Madeline. I mean, she sounds like she'd be a bunch of fun. Oh, she's a bunch of chaos, that one. <laughs> but chaos is fun. I mean, she, she sounds like she's having, well, I guess maybe you'd call it fun. Oh, definitely. And um, I travel, I've traveled a lot and she uh, has all of the most wacky experiences from my many different countries all sort of pooled into one six-month period. I did kind of wonder how much of this might have been based on some kind of actual experience. Well, I can't say that I've ever been pulled in by the FBI for questioning. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. However, I do think that I might react the same way. So have you ever had a roommate or a housemate that you were introduced to for the first time and you realized, this is not what I signed up for? Yes, I uh, lived in a residential college in Adelaide for my university and I came into a college full of 200 people and we had what we called O-Week and I didn't realize that O-Week meant that they could uh, abuse you by covering you with Vegemite and fish sauce and eggs and flour and um, basically making you get up at 6.30 in the morning with a really loud music and I, I thought to myself, my God, what have I got myself into? <laughs> so then I guess when when Madeline meets her housemate Kim, who's not a, not a her but a him, which rhymes with Kim, she's a little surprised. Definitely, and um, Kim's a, a little bit of an odd fellow. He's a he's. I've met a lot of very socially inept people in my life, and he's one of those people who's not quite sure how to react around a crowd. But my God, does he he love to party? <laughs> now, now she's got to stay focused because, as we said at the outset, she's finally achieved her dream. She's she's accepted into this exclusive school. She wants to be a photographer, right? Indeed, um, she. I. I'm an amateur photographer myself, and frankly, if I didn't do writing, photography would be my next thing that I would go for. And the one thing that I do know is that uh, in photography, it's really hard to get ahead. There are a whole so many photographers in the world, and so she. Um, realizes what a fantastic opportunity it is and particularly to get you know paid to go overseas but then she starts to worry about money because as we all know these days finding scholarships that cover every expense is very rare mm -hmm. and so she has to think well not only do I have to be able to live uh, but I want to be able to make the best of my opportunity and that's where a lot of the uh, bizarre situations in the book come from because she ends up getting a job as a pizza delivery girl. That sounds simple and straightforward enough. Oh, it does, doesn't it? But then you don't take into account the sort of people who can fit into New York. Uh, yes, I've heard there can be some strange characters. Indeed, very strange. But it's very fun and vibrant city, and that's what's so great about it, is the amount of people that are able to fit into such a small space. That's what makes mm -hmm. New York so exciting. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it is, as they say, the city that never sleeps. Indeed. <laughs> All right, but, again, she's got to stay focused. I mean, I'm trying to put myself in her shoes. I mean, 
she's she's gotten gotten into this this world famous school. She's about to realize her dream. She's got a roommate that eh, okay, she'll have to learn to live with him as chameleon. But she's really got to stay focused. Now she's got to get a part time job. All this stuff is piling on her shoulders. You've given her quite a burden. Yeah, I'm I'm a mean author, <laughs> but she. She does very well with it, and the the school is famous for the fact that it doesn't do things traditionally. So um, Jason is a very odd mentor in the fact that he doesn't want any of his students to have had previous training, and he uh, sends them out to do very obscure things. Like he says, I want you to take a type of photography that's not art, and then I want you to turn it into something that is art. And Madeline's like, well, what what the hell is he talking about? Not only do I have all of these things piling up, like I've got to, to to make money and I've got to deal with these crazy housemates and friends, but I also have to de-ravel his mystifying logic. And that's how she ends up getting into her whole spy photography episode and getting picked up by the FBI. <laughs> now, I, I'm, I don't want to edge into spoiler territory here, but how exactly... Does one accidentally blackmail someone? Well, by not being aware of the who they've taken a photograph of. <laughs> so, so Madeline, she's she's from a, a a country city in Australia, and she's not necessarily up with all of the celebrities in the U.S. And she and her mates from her class, because in Australia we call them mates. Her and her classmates, they go to a nightclub and they're doing a bit of a, a marketing photography assignment. And so she had been in a bit of a rut. She was so tired. She couldn't get any photography done because she was just going between school, between work, and then she wasn't going to bed until 2 a.m. in the morning. And so she was getting really down about the fact that she didn't have any time to do any sort of photography. And um, this assignment was a way to sort of buoy her up because they were going to a nightclub. And so she was wandering around the nightclub, took a photograph of a really pretty girl kissing another guy, and all of a sudden found herself being followed by a guy with a mustache. And she couldn't understand why. And it was because one of the photographs that she took was of somebody very famous doing something very naughty. <laughs> Poor Madeline. <laughs> Bless her heart. <laughs> She's 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 not a stupid person. Uh, she's not a stupid person. She doesn't uh, necessarily do embarrassing things, but embarrassing things just happen around her. Well, I'd like to see how well folks from New York would do in Adelaide. Well, uh, I bet they do pretty well because you can get anywhere in twenty minutes in Adelaide. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's you're talking like basically cultural differences and and. You know the kinds of things that that stories have been built on for for decades and centuries, and but you know I, I'm fascinated by the new spin that you're that authors are always able to put on a story like this. And I suppose that comes from um, I mean authors can be any anybody from anywhere in the world, and mm -hmm. um, and they say that if you gave fifty authors ideas, none of them like if you gave them the same idea none of them would come out with the same story. And that's all because of, you know, our different experiences and, and where we've come from and the people that we've met. Oh, I, I guarantee that there were probably authors in ancient Athens who told stories like this about having a weird roommate when they went to Sparta. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, you wouldn't believe the customs they have up there. <laughs> yeah, those damn Romans. That's right. Now, 
I, uh, the other day, a friend of mine and I were talking about how tethered everyone in the world, it seems, has become to Facebook and how it's become not just you know, a tool on the computer, that for some people it's almost a lifeline. And then I actually made reference to your book when I was telling him, I said, so much so, there's so much drama on Facebook that now an author's basically turned an entire book based on the idea of Facebook updates and friending and defriending and, and you know the liking and unliking and all this kind of stuff. How did, how did this, first, this concept first come to you? Uh well, I am actually a fantasy author. Uh, I started out as a fantasy author, really loved the genre, and I had sort of gotten myself into a bit of a rut. I've done the whole, you know, submitting to Publisher Gambit, and I was told by a wonderful author called Garth Nix that I just needed to put it aside and write another book. And so I had found out about NaNoWriMo and thought that was a fantastic idea. Let's try and write a book in a month. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I couldn't write a fantasy in a month of 50,000 word fantasy. It just explode my head. <laughs> so I decided that I would do something fun, sort of in the, in the vein of um, the wonderful Meg Cabot, you know, really right. strong female characters, but um, a really funny outlook on life and something that was lighthearted. I really enjoyed reading those sort of books. And so I went, okay, well, it's going to be a comedy. And I was, you know, spending a lot of time on Facebook. I was doing a bit of procrastination. So I said, well, Facebook is just a conversation between people. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of conversation that to me, it was very interesting. I had a lot of friends posting really amusing stuff on Facebook, and I went, well, I'd seen Meg Cabot do an entire book in emails, and I thought, <laughs> Facebook's much better than an email, and it sort of ran from there because you can have – you can figure out who a person is by reading their Facebook profile. It's amazing. What do they like? What do they say in response to other people? What sort of photographs do they post up? It's – Almost like, because when you read a, a Facebook update, it's basically somebody talking to you. It's it's almost like an entire book of dialogue, and I'd never done that before, so it got me a bit excited. I was I was just going to say when you were describing Facebook as a conversation, conversation is for, to a novelist simply another word for dialogue, is it not? It is indeed, and I suppose the only point where it becomes a story is where I, ex I expand things and have Madeline put her adventures in notes, which is what I did when I went to Chile a couple of years ago. Wow. And, and of course, Facebook is not just you know, an update, then another update, then another update, and things like this. It has, as we mentioned, you know, the like buttons and the, and the friending phenomenon. There's lots of – and poking, oh, what's that? You know, there's all kinds of things that you can spice up the story with. Oh, yeah, there's Farmville. We've got uh, all sorts of ads that pop up. And the, the sorts of groups that are on Facebook, if you really stopped and actually went through the groups that some of your friends had started or been a part of, and you go, oh, my goodness, there is a fan club out there for everything. Fan club for Mr. Bean dancing like a crazy person? There. Fan club for people who like to wear hats? There. It's, yeah, it's great. Now, the whole human experience. Did you ever worry, though, in the writing of this book that maybe 10 years from now, Facebook will be so declassé and so in the past that people will look at your book and say, how quaint, Facebook, indeed. Well, because it's an entire book 
of conversations. There's Social media has become so ingrained in our psyche and in the psyche of our generation that if it's not Facebook, it will be some other form of social media. Mm-hmm. And it, social media is about the conversation. So it's something that could very easily um, be adapted if I felt like it or it could be one of those things where it will last until I die at least because um, – people from my generation will remember Facebook. Do you know how many other people you're going to inspire with this book to write their own? Oh my goodness, I really hope so. I want to see a book that comes out in tweets. <laughs> I want to see uh, you know, a book that comes out in Instagram photos that could be a bit difficult or might be a bit big. But um, I, would, I would love to see it. And in fact, I would love to see people not even just keep it in a book. I would love to see people actually put a novel on Facebook. I mean, I've I've sort of tried to do that in a way. I started uh, six different Facebook pages from the main characters of my book. So all the main characters of my book are actually on Facebook and they post to each other. <laughs> I figured out how to make them post on each other's page. So technically, I could put the whole Grand Adventures of Madeline Kane onto Facebook. <laughs> well, you know what? Hold that thought and when you do it, get back to me. We'll have you back on the show and we'll explain to people how you did it. Yeah, exactly, and it'll um, you know, it'll have to be free because how are you supposed to charge people to read a Facebook page, really? Ah, oh, but you know what? Facebook's figured out that whole monetization thing, so I bet you could too. Oh, God, <laughs> very annoying, very annoying. When 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 people join the the fan page for the Grand Adventures of Madeline Kane, they join it, and I post an update, and only like ten people get to see it out of a hundred people. It's very annoying. Now, I will also warn you ahead of time. There is only one thing that people steal more than they steal books, and that's photos so uh, (laughs) indeed although as an author you've got to be very careful about that because um they i've i've heard of authors getting sued for for not checking the copyright and the photographs they even put up on their blogs that's right that's right it's a it's a a litigious society as they say so maybe maybe you should have made maybe you should have made madeline an attorney but no that's a whole other book Oh, well, there's plenty of Facebook tales to tell, Bill. (laughs) Yes. Well, we've been talking with Emily Craven about her book, The Grand Adventures of Madeline Kane, Photographer Extraordinaire. And thanks so much for joining us on the bookcast. Oh, thank you, Bill. It was wonderful. Thank you for listening today. I hope it inspired you. You can get more information on the ebook revolution and author marketing online at ebookrevolution.blogspot.com. See you for the next show. Viva la revolution.